You may have noticed the theme in our songs this morning. O come, O come, Emmanuel ends, fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Away in a manger ends and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. My Jesus, I love you. The fourth verse includes, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. Jesus, keep me near the cross. The refrain reminds us of the joy of the rest beyond the river of reference to crossing the Jordan, a reference to entering into heaven, and of course, almost home. The sermon title for today's sermon is God Graciously Gives Us Heaven Through Christ. God graciously gives us heaven through Christ. Make no mistake, Christmas, at least as much as it is about Christ, is about getting. About getting. About receiving something from God. You can try to redeem the meaning of the holiday by giving, but first, Christ is to us about getting something from God. Today, I think giving has often turned into a form of guilt-ridden legalism. Give, give, give. Giving can be a new law. Consider how advertising works today, especially during Christmas. Advertisements are not for you and for what you want. Therefore, that special someone. This gift is the perfect gift for that person who already has everything else. And so that's how you know if you've had a good holiday or not. You, you can leave the holidays with a clean conscience if you're a good giver of gifts. That's part of our organizational culture year-round today as well. You aren't a genuinely caring company if you don't give 1% of your profits back to some good cause. Every genuinely caring company has some give-back program that they put on their labels. The American Christmas season provides an opportunity to be very selfish. I know this personally. It also provides an opportunity to be wrapped with guilt about giving. But how much do you give before you stop feeling guilty? How do you measure a good gift? The amount that you spent? Maybe for you, the amount that you saved because you bought it in November? Is it the reaction when they open the gift? Is it where that gift is in March? I don't want to discourage you, but just think about where those gifts are going to be in March and in June. Oh, that's terrible. That's just a sad thought. (laughs) As much as Christmas is about Christ, it's about getting something from God, something that you cannot buy. Really, at the end of the book of Job is the heart of the message of the Bible. God is the giver. You might be thinking of the verse right now. It's better to give than to receive. But through the Bible, God is the one who gives to his people. He gives them protection, provision, presence. That's E-N-C-E. And more through his covenant. God's the giver. His people are the receivers. Well, we are in the book of Job, as Marilyn read. We're coming down to the home stretch now, the end of the book of Job. And here's the basic rundown of the book of Job. First, Job has everything that you could want in life. Family, home, wealth, health. 
And Job is right before God. He fears God. He's a righteous man before God's eyes. Blameless, it even says. But then, for some unknown reason to Job and his friends, God allows Satan to take everything away from Job. His children, his home, his wealth, and even his own physical health. And we've seen over the last months, the majority of the book of Job is his friends and Job have no idea why God has done this. I mean, they have debated and debated and debated. Surely Job actually has sinned. That's why God did this, because Job is such a terrible sinner. Oh, Job, maybe, maybe you're going to accuse God of being wrong. He brought all this suffering on you for no, for no reason. And it's debated over and over. Doesn't God do good things to good people, and doesn't God do bad things to bad people? Isn't that the way it works? So this doesn't make any sense, Job. Finally, God speaks and settles the debate. God is wise and powerful over creation, and he's even wise and powerful over evil and chaos itself. We saw that last week. That's where we left off last week. God's sovereignty will extend. His sovereignty will extend over evil and chaos. Nothing is out of God's control, and evil cannot thwart the plan of God. Job responds in the only way that you could. He puts his hand on his mouth, and he accepts that God is both sovereign and good. Well, now what? Now we come to the end of the book of Job. We find something wonderfully familiar to the redemptive narrative of Scripture. At the end of Job, we find the pattern and the shadow of Jesus himself. We see Jesus in this way at the end of Job. We see it in the justification of Job. We see it in the mediation of Job. We see Christ in the family and the fortunes of Job. And we'll see Christ in the life of Job. The justification, the mediation, the family and fortunes, and the life of Job. Look back at what Marilyn read for us, chapter 42, verse 7, and see the justification of Job. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Job is immediately justified before God, because God says, Job said of me what is right, and your friends, the friends, did not. What does it mean to be justified? In this case, it's discerning between two parties who is right and who is wrong. Who's in the right before the judge and who's wrongly accusing or guilty themselves? In this case, who's justified before God? Job is. Why is Job justified before God? Why is he right before God? Because he spoke of God what is right. Now listen, we've, we've seen Job struggle. Job has really struggled in his suffering. He did not always have a good, easy time in his suffering, and he just stayed faithful, and he didn't have any questions, and he never, you know, he never got low, he never got discouraged, he never got confused. But in all of his struggle, he held the line that God is good and sovereign. What Job said at the beginning of his suffering, he held throughout his suffering. He didn't completely understand God, but he did not accuse God of doing wrong. He didn't completely understand God, but he did not accuse God of doing wrong. Therefore, he was justified before God. He was right, is what God says. 
Now, friends, that's not us, is it? Have you ever been wrong about God? Said something about God that you maybe regret? Either in anger, maybe you just had a belief that was a wrong belief. Maybe you had a wrong feeling or emotion about God. Only Christ, only Christ came to the earth as a man and knew God as he is and spoke of God as he is and felt about God what is true about God. We haven't all done that. That's called idolatry. We've committed what's called idolatry. We've called things that are not God, God, with our affections, with our money, with our, our time. We've denied God. Some of us maybe in our life saying He didn't exist. Maybe you've lied about God, suggesting that He's mean, that He doesn't care, or that God is evil Himself. Sometimes we speak for God what God has not even said. That's how Job's friends talked. God doesn't want to come down here and answer us. But at the same time, I have a special word for you on God's behalf. And listen, because of that, God was actually angry with them. God was angry with them. That's what it says in the verse. God was angry at them. My anger burns against you and your two friends, Eliphaz. God is angry at those who all claim to know him, yet lie about him. It's one thing to be ignorant of God's spoken revelation. It's another thing to be confused about it. It's another to proudly, boastfully speak for God and speak of God what is false about God. That's Job's friends. God takes his reputation on earth very gravely, seriously. More completely than any prophet, more than any man or any woman, more than anyone else, Jesus spoke what is right about God, both with his mouth and with his life. This is what makes Jesus so unique among all humanity. Jesus says in John chapter 12, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And at his baptism, God's voice thundered from heaven saying, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. In the end, Jesus was vindicated. Jesus was justified. His words and his claims about speaking God's word and doing God's word and knowing God perfectly. Jesus was vindicated when he raised from the dead. He kept saying he was going to raise from the dead. He kept saying, no one takes my life from me, but I'm going to lay it down. And the Father has given me authority to take it up again, to raise from the dead. Everything that Jesus said, God said, came true and is true. Therefore, Jesus is the perfectly justified one before God, who knows God as he is and spoke of him and his commands in truthfulness. This means Jesus, like Job, can mediate for his friends. Next, we see Jesus in the mediation of Job. Look at verses 42, 8 through 9. What, what a turn of events here. Job ends up being the one God accepts. God is angry at Job's friends. But then the very friend who has suffered the friend's abuse becomes the one who is the mediator for those friends. Look in 42, verse 8 through 9. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. 
and my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. What's Job doing? Let's get right to the point here. Job is like a priest in the temple worship. He's doing the same kind of role. Job takes the sacrifices from the people, then on their behalf, Job goes to God, then God forgives the sins of the people via the mediator. I mean, did you see this coming in Job? After all these rounds of debates and fights and calling each other stupid and each other's mom's names and stuff, now... Job is a mediator for his friends. I mean, Job's friends blamed the death of his own daughters on him and his sinfulness. Now, Job is going to God praying on their behalf. And God forgives the wicked, unrighteous, unjustified friends because of Job, through Job's prayer for them. They were asked to bring bulls as sacrifice. Well, friends, we know from the New Testament, God does not ultimately accept animal blood on behalf of human sin. Uh, there's a reason we don't have a stall back in the back part of our two acres here, four acres with animals, just we do sacrifices. There's a reason we don't do that here. That's because Jesus has fulfilled Scripture to be the lamb of sacrifice for sinners. Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. Hebrews 9.12 says, But Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I mean, what, what Job did for his friends, Jesus did for his enemies all over the world. What Jesus, well, excuse me, what Job did for his friends in response to God's anger, Jesus did eternally through the cross for me and you with his own blood. The very people who griped and complained against God, they're the very ones Jesus came to die for. When Jesus was on the cross, he prayed this very thing about the people crucifying him. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. The justified one before God, became the mediator for the unjustified. That's the pattern of Jesus in Job. When God accepted Job's prayer, it means his anger was turned away from them. Now, friends, if you want to go to rest tonight, put your head on your pillow and be sure that God is no longer angry at you. That God's not angry at you because of your sin any longer. The only way to do that is by putting your faith and trust that Jesus Christ became a mediator for you. That his blood was spilled on the cross for your sins. That when you go to bed at night, you can go to sleep and go, you know what, it's not me. I'm like Job's friends. I don't know, I, I don't know. I've sinned against God. The only way that I can go to bed justified is if the justified mediator goes to God on my behalf. His blood actually offered in the presence of God in heaven for us, confess your sin, believe in Jesus Christ as the mediator for you, the justified, righteous mediator crucified for you. And we see 
Christ next in the family of Job. Chapter 42, verse 10 and 11. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then came to him all his brothers and sisters, all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Well, there's so much to say here, but I think the central point is this. Job's family is restored to him. They ate together again. They ate as brothers and sisters. I don't know about you, now my brother lives in Texas. He finally repented. He moved from Colorado back to Texas. So I'm looking forward to seeing him, looking forward to seeing Colette's family, most of them. I'm just kidding. Look forward to seeing all of them. We're going to be sitting around some tables in the next. I've got a lot of tables to go sit around the next few weeks. Uh, we're going to be having some, some friends and people over to our house and to our table the next few weeks. I mean, I can picture tables in my life, right? I can picture my grandmother's table. I can, I, it's the same, it was the same every year. Uh, the, the food was the same every year. The, the people changed, but they're pretty much the same every year. And it's just that, that table, it, it's family. It means something. But as sweet as that table is and as wonderful as that food is, it is nothing compared to when the family of God will sit together in heaven one day. It's nothing compared. When there are no more tears and there is no more death and there is no more sadness, there's no more sickness, there's no more darkness, and we sit together at the table, brothers and sisters in Christ. What what Job is seeing here is, is a picture of the family of Christ coming together on the other side of redemption. All Christians who are believing in and submitting to Jesus as the Lord, they are brothers and sisters in the Lord. They're family. And all having God as their father. There was a time when Jesus was doing ministry and his family couldn't, couldn't get to him. Luke, Luke 8 says it like this. Then his mother and his brothers and sisters came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And Jesus was told, hey, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Now this... Jesus is going to show us that Mary was an extremely gracious woman because if my mother was standing outside saying, son, I need to see you, I think I'd go see the woman and just say, yes, ma'am. Not because she's harsh, but she's mom. Here's what Jesus said. My mother and my brother, my brothers, are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's my family. I've got family on earth. I've got a dad, I've got a mom, and I've got brothers and sisters. My family, my family is those who hear the word of God and do it. Those who believe in Christ. Those who believe in God's word. That's my family. You have more eternal family with those in Christ than those who you're going to share tables with in the next two weeks. If your brother's not a brother in Christ, there's going to be a day when they're not at the table. They're not going to be in God's table. They're not going to be at the family table with Christ. Maybe this put more onus on you not to go and think about yourself as going to family, but going to a place over the holidays that you would hope become family in the Lord. The true family are those who are following Christ 
and being obedient to the word of God, Jesus' true family will be restored to him. His true family will be restored to him. The whole point of Jesus' life and ministry was that he would be the first of many brothers. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, that Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's what Jesus came to do, establish a family. And who is the family of God? Those who are in Christ by faith. Ephesians says he predestined us for adoption as sons. Now see the pattern. Suffering, justified, mediator, secures the family. Suffering, justified, mediator, receives, regains, restores his family. Following Job's mediation of prayer for his friends came the meal with the family. It's the familiar pattern that points us to who are who in Jesus by faith. If Jesus is our mediator, then we will be with him on the other side of suffering forever. The family restored. And the fortune was restored. Look at verse 12 through 15. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than its beginning. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than its beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. Those are all exactly double. An exact multiplication of two, everything that he owned in the beginning. And he also had, as he did in the beginning, seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karin Hapuk. In all the lands, there are no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Usually the women were not given inheritance. But Job and his wealth and his generosity and his love for his daughters, they did as well. Job restored everything. Excuse me, God restored everything Job had lost and multiplied it. And that's what Jesus taught would happen if we follow him. Matthew 19, verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And if you lose it in this life, you only have it multiplied in heaven. Job ends not just pointing to Jesus, but pointing to Jesus' gift of heaven. This is the pattern of the New Testament. Suffer now, glory later. Suffer now, redemption and restoration after death. Suffer the world now, rest and enjoy heaven beyond the Jordan forever. That's the point of the author. Listen to what the author added. The author added, the, the narrator added to Job, God blessed more in the latter days. He puts our whole experience of following Jesus in perspective. Blessed more in the latter days. More blessed after what suffering God in his wisdom and power allowed Job and us to endure. And then we see Job's long life. Job lived, you might say today, like forever. In verse 16. And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man, and full of days. What's the point here? I mean, this is the end of the book of Job. 
And after all this suffering, when it looked like, I mean, you know, his own wife told him just kill himself, you know, just curse God and he'll kill you and you get, the, get this all over with. Now at the end of Job, he, he has more than ever. He has a long, full life. Someone who filled up his days. And we don't have to talk much about what this means to us. We know the tragedy of death of someone we feel died too young. And we know that the peace that we feel when someone dies a full old age of life. This phrase is used to describe the death of covenant-bearing men like Abraham, Isaac, and David. Men who died right with the Lord, like Job. They died, it says, in each of their deaths, full of days. Or an old man. Their days had been filled. But if old age is fitting for Job, how much more is eternal life fitting for Christ and his family? Jesus has risen from the dead. And Paul says in Romans 6, he will never die again. That's what Jesus promises us in our suffering. Eternal life. And not just length of life, but the kind of life that God granted spiritual life that can't be taken away. That doesn't die. Believe in Jesus who is the resurrection, he said in John 11. And though you die, you'll live. You'll never see death in that way. Jesus suffered, but he was justified and so raised from the dead never to die again. And the promise, John 3.16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll never perish. Job is patterned after Jesus. Job is patterned after Jesus. That's the whole point. Now that Christ has come, now that we read Job, having seen Christ, Job is what's known as, or Jesus is what's known as the prima facie understanding of the end of Job. The first face of the end of the book of Job. Taken at face value. If you know Jesus, you see Jesus as the justified, suffering mediator through whom God redeems the family of Christ and restores his fortunes, then when you read the end of Job, the first impression that you would have, the first face that you would see would be, that's Jesus. I mean, that, that's, what Jesus that's what God is doing through Jesus. Job isn't Jesus himself. He's, he's a pattern. He's, he's a shadow. And you might think, oh, you're, you're making all these connections. But that's the whole point of the way the Bible works. It's pointing to Jesus every direction forward and backward forever. If you get to Job, we said this in our very first sermon in the book of Job back in September. If you have the book of Job, and all of its teachings, and all of its morality, and all of its lessons about suffering. If you have Job, but you don't have Jesus, you have moralism. You don't have a mediator. You can't be a mediator for other people like Job was for his friends. We're not justified like Job is before God. We can't be accepted before God as perfect sacrifice, as a stand-in for someone else. We're sinners. We need a mediator. The whole point of Job is is pointing us toward Jesus who is the suffering, justified Son of God who can be the high priest offering up His own blood for you, for me, and for every sinner who would come in repentance and faith. 
It was always pointing to the ultimate wisdom and power of God in suffering. Job was always pointing to the ultimate wisdom and power of God in suffering, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where does all the sovereignty of suffering and the designs of God, where do all those designs of what God was doing in Job that were totally misunderstood by Job and his friends, that are so often totally misunderstood by us when we don't know what God's doing, where does all the sovereignty of suffering and the designs of God finally become most crystal clear and most glorious to us in Jesus? In Jesus, Job doesn't get all the answers. He just hears from God that God is wise, that God is powerful, and that even evil and chaos are not outside God's jurisdiction or His orchestration. So when Jesus comes to the earth and lives in the light, He comes as the light and He steps in front of the shadow as the thing, the real thing that Job is always pointing towards. Listen, in Jesus, the justified one mediates for his enemies through suffering, even evil, as part of the wise and sovereign plan of God who in the end gathers his family and fortunes back together forever. In Jesus, the justified one mediates for his enemies through suffering, even evil, as part of the wise and sovereign plan of God who in the end gathers his family and fortunes back together forever. Job was about the gospel for all who would put their faith in Christ and become family. That's Job. That's the gospel. Three very big but very short implications and one final thought on Job. Three very big but very short implications. The end of Job and all of Job. First, first big short implication. Be patient. You might think your suffering is going to go on forever. It's going to go on forever. But listen. If you're not trusting, if you are not trusting in Jesus, and there's no mediator between you and God, it will only get worse when you stand before God with no mediator to answer for your sin. You think this life is suffering. You think this is terrible. Wait till you have to answer for your sin. We don't know God's designs and why he's doing what he's doing today. Why he allows what he allows and what he doesn't. He doesn't tell us everything. But we know that we will answer for our sin in the end. But if you are trusting in Christ, all suffering is just a little while. This is just a little while. You see that in Job? It seemed like Job, the book, was going on forever and ever. I mean, I've been waiting for this sermon for a long time. I just, I'm tired of the discussion with the friends. It was just a little while. It seemed like God was never going to answer the question, but when he did, it just feels like a little while. A little while longer, dear one. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Does it sound like Job chapter 1? Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Just a little while longer, brothers and sisters, be patient. Compare. The second big short implication is compare. The narrator wants us to compare. The book of Job starts out with, who, who could imagine more wealth than that? I mean, the, the cows and the oxen and the children and the house and the, the land. I mean, that, that wealth is, is meant to be just nearly incalculable. You know, if we remember back from that first or second sermon, I think you know, we're talking about wealth that would equate to billions and billions of dollars today. But now here on the other side of just suffering and justification, what does it say? Verse, chapter 42, verse 10, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Verse 42, verse 12, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Compare. For, for strength and endurance and to have a right worldview about what God's doing in the world, what he's promised to, in, to Christians in Christ, Christians were supposed to compare. Compare suffering now to glory later. Compare obedience to God's commands now that leaves us in suffering, that leaves us weird and awkward in the world, that might cost us money in the world, that might cost us comfort at the kitchen table in the world, that might cost us family members in the world. Compare it. Compare it to the glory later. Paul has fitting words for us in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Not even compare. When you look at what God is giving us in Christ, through, through Christ in heaven, it doesn't even compare. A glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Compare the things you can see to the things that are eternal. Job's teaching us to do that. Thirdly, a big but short implication, fear God, keep His commandments. Fear God, keep His commandments. What can we do? We talked about this a few weeks ago in Job chapter 28, that wisdom section of the book of Job. What, what can you do? I mean, what do you do? We have no idea what suffering God may allow in our lives. No idea. And when, when, when we do endure suffering of various trials and various kinds, God just tends not to tell us why. There is a wisdom that God has in His mind, in His heart, and His plan, both in Christ and in each of our lives, that we may never understand until we're with Him. What can you do? What do you do? Fear God and keep His commandments. Job teaches us that God is absolutely wise. He's absolutely powerful. No one thwarts His plan, not even evil. He is sovereign and God is free. I think God's freedom scares us to death. And it ought to. Job's meant to be a fear-inducing wisdom. God is wise. He never makes a mistake. God never looks at something and says, well, I could have done that better. 
No one ever tricks God out of his plan. That's God's point to Job in his first speech. I was wise. And God is powerful. In creation, God says, look around. Where were you when we, when we told the oceans where to stop? Oh yeah, you weren't there. That's right, you weren't there. God is all-powerful. Evil is not stronger than God. Evil is not stronger than God. God is all-powerful. And God is sovereign. Even more sovereign than Mephasa. He reigns past where the light touches. God does not tell us everything. And there's a part of what God plans and executes in heaven that you may never know. What can we do? Go back to Job 28, verse 28. Here's what he said. He said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that's what it means to understand in the world. Understanding what everything God's going to do in the world, you'll never know that. But you want to have understanding, fear God, keep his commandments, that's it. Remember, that's the beginning of Proverbs. That whole book of wisdom, that's the beginning of Proverbs. This is the beginning of wisdom, to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, Pro- of wisdom, Proverbs 1.7. It's the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, that other book of wisdom. Everything's meaningless. Everything, everything is vanity. Your, your new car, wait, wait, five years, ten years, maybe, you're going to get out of it? Your home, your, your clothes. I mean, it's, all, it's all vain. It's all going to go away. We're all going to the grave. What, what matters? What's the only thing that sticks the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Everything you ever do in your life is going to come under the judgment of God. Things that are seen, things that are unseen. So fear God and keep his commandments. Ultimately, that drives us to Jesus Christ. Fearing God, keeping his commandments. Realizing we can't keep his commandments. We go to God for forgiveness and restoration of our relationship with him. And then we spend our lives fearing him and obeying him. And What's God going to bring our way? What does that mean for us? What's our lot in life? What's our wealth or our suffering? It's not up to us. You fear God, keep his commandments. One final main point in the book of Job. There are many that I think that we could put here. And here's, I think, a big idea in the book of Job. And it's that God is the giver. If God forgives our sin and saves us from what we actually deserve, it's a gift through Jesus Christ. We never get the answer to Job's question why. God never says why he allowed what he allowed to Job. And it's that silence from God to that question that's one of the loudest things in the book of Job. Why? Well, just see that God does it in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, in his power. God gave Satan the order. He let out the leash to destroy everything that Job had. Then God, just as easily, just as quickly, just as swiftly, the words out of his mouth, the command, his wisdom, his power, he restored Job's life to him. Friends, it's a gift. Life from God is a gift. Everything that Job ever had is a gift. And Job put it in perspective in the very beginning. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 1.21. 
the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, and now Job can say, the Lord has restored. Why? In his sovereignty, he takes and God gives according to his wisdom. In one sense, the Lord restores Job because he's justified, not like his friends. He speaks what is right about God. He puts his faith and he fears God. But I think in another sense, you get to the end of the book and you think, well, God, why did you restore everything? We're asking the same questions we were asking when God took away everything. Why? What made you give back to Job? You were willing to take it, now you're, now you're giving it. it. It really is a free grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, of God, through Christ. The Christmas season is actually a great time to end, Job. Be reminded that you cannot obey the law of giving to be right before God. You can't be enough. You can't be righteous enough. You can't be your own mediator. You can't justify yourself before God with your righteousness. Only Jesus does that. I mean, what, what is Christmas about? If, if it's about anything that's good, it's about Jesus sending his son to be the justified sufferer who becomes the mediator for his enemies through suffering evil under the sovereignty of God, who in the end gathers his family and fortunes back together forever. That's what God's doing in and through Christ. We've already said Job points us to Jesus. Listen to how Paul concludes his 11-chapter dissertation on the gospel in Romans 11. This is the final thought of Paul after 11 chapters of gospel. Chapter 11, verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Does that sound like Job? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one salvation and forgiveness of sin heaven through Christ is a gift church guest just know that God's not holding out on you God's not keeping his best behind his back you ever, you ever go to Christmas and just think really mom this is, this is it this year really this, this all we're doing mm, okay at least we got food God doesn't hold back when he gives through Christ. There are a lot of reasons I'm thankful for John Piper. You may or may not know that he's a poet. He's actually written a great deal of poetry. His poetic portrayal of Job is uh, one of my favorites, and it's particularly insightful. At the end of the three-part poem about Job, Piper imagines, has a wonderful imagination Piper imagines Job having a conversation with one of his new daughters. One of his new daughters at the end. I pick up in the last part of part three of the poem. A daughter says, but Papa, please, one more. Would you tell me about the wind that blew, about the whirlwind and the word of God? You told me you once heard the very voice of God. What did he say? Job said, Where were you, Job, when I, with mirth, the great foundations of the earth, did lay, and all the sons of God rejoiced to watch a formless clod become the habitation of my bride? Did you once brood above the waters and appoint their bounds, and have you joined the king who crowns 
The mammoth sky with morning light. Come, Job, gird up your feeble might and make your case against the Lord. Do you know where the snow is stored? Or how I make the hail and rain? Or how I buried seeds? Or how a buried seed bears grain? How ravens find their food at night and lilies clothe themselves with white? And finally, my servant Job, can you draw down and then disrobe? Leviathan, the king of all, the sons of pride, and in his fall strip off his camouflage of strength and make him over all the length of earth and heaven to serve the plan of humble righteousness? I can. I make Leviathan my rod. Beloved Job, behold your God. And what did you say, Papa, when the Lord was done? I said, Amen. And I bowed as, as low as I could bow. Come here, my lass, and I'll show you how. When she crouched before his feet, he picked her up, and with a sweet and tender grip, he said, watch this. And on her cheek, he put a kiss. Job said, behold the mercy of our king, who takes from death its bitter sting, and by his blood and often ours, brings triumph out of hostile powers and paints with crimson earth and soul until the body, the bloody work is whole. What we have lost, God will restore that and himself forevermore when he is finished with his art, the quiet worship of our heart. When God creates a humble hush and makes Leviathan his brush, it won't be long before the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. Whatever you are suffering today, whatever you are suffering today, know that what you need more than anything is forgiveness for your sins before God. And in Christ, in Christ, the mediator who suffered even at the hands of evil, so that he could, by the blood of his cross, forgive your sin, save you from the wrath of God, and raise from the dead to one day bring all of his brothers and sisters home. It won't be long before the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word in the book of Job. A difficult book to understand at times, and Father, a difficult book to, to feel at times. But we pray here that as we hear these last words, we would put everything in perspective in our lives according to your grace to give us heaven through Christ. And, and might we leave today boasting and rejoicing, even if through through tears, even through sad faces, our boast and our joy would be when Christ has died for us, you have forgiven our sin, and our family will be with you forever in heaven. By that, Father, help us. Help us cast off every love for this world. Help us see the world through your eyes. Fear you. Keep your commandments. 
Give you just a moment to reflect on what we've heard in God's word today in prayer. And I'll come back in just a moment. Christ, help us rejoice today by your spirit, according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.